All right, I'm to bring the message here this morning, and uh, we're having a communion service, and I think of that word, it's a beautiful word, communion. And it's referring to the common union that Christians have with the Lord Jesus and with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, a body of redeemed people committed to one another in the local church. And remembering together today our Savior's suffering and death for our salvation as he has instructed us to do and to uh, respond to that in our hearts. Jesus took bread and gave thanks, it says in Luke, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the, uh, with the cup. I would like to read uh, part of the crucifix, crucifixion passage from Matthew 27. If you want to turn there, and I'll begin reading at verse 33. <coughs> Matthew 27, beginning at verse 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints 
which slept, arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Why do we remember? Why do we remember this, uh, this crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Is it a history review to keep the facts straight? The people, the players, the events, the things in the order that they happened. That's good to remember. It's, it's the story. Is it a doctrinal review? Jesus died, a sacrifice, an offering for sin for mankind, and there's cleansing by the blood of the Lamb. It is that. But it's more. Is it to stir our emotions? We can be upset at the injustice, the unfair trial, the mocking, the beating, the horror, and the abhorrence of it all. And we can sympathize and weep with, the, with a grief for his suffering and his life being taken. When we read the crucifixion story or we hear that story, all of those things happen, I believe, for us. But I think you'll all agree that for a blood-washed, delivered disciple of Jesus Christ, something more happens. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The cup of blessing which we bless. There was a cup of suffering. The sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus. It becomes to us a cup of blessing because it provides for the salvation of our souls. The scriptures speak of other cups that we might be more deserving of uh, there are a number of them, a couple of them. One is in Isaiah 51, verse 17. It speaks of a cup of his fury, God's fury. Speaking to Jerusalem, thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling, judgment. And in Ezekiel, speaks of a cup of astonishment and desolation. But God has offered to us mercy, so we don't face those cups. Mercy and deliverance through Christ. And when we see our sinfulness, and we miss a great part of the story when we read about the crucifixion and Jesus Christ, and don't think about ourselves and our need and why he went there, when we understand our sinfulness, our lost and helpless condition, and the condemnation that we were under, and we realize that Jesus delivered us from that, 
we're, we're affected, we're stirred, and, and we should be. I think of the publican in the temple beating upon his chest God, and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think of the woman weeping at Jesus' feet, a sinful woman, and washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. I think of the uh, gathering demoniac. After the demons were cast out of him and the swine charged into the sea and the herdsmen rushed into the city and told the folks there what all had happened. And the distressed townsmen came out alarmed about this person that was causing such commotion. And they went out to see what it was all about. And when they came to where Jesus was, they saw the former madman sitting there calmly at Jesus' feet and dressed and sober and normal. And they, in their alarm, begged Jesus to leave. And he started off with his disciples toward his boat and the the former madman uh, followed close behind him. And when they got to the boat, he begged to go along with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you stay here and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Great things, great mercy, great deliverance. And he was so filled with it, he did. He went back to Decapolis and published there how great things Jesus had done for him. And we think about the great things that Jesus has done for us. I had a little deliverance uh, here a while back. A number of you know that several years ago I was in an accident and uh, I was sued. And the other party was in no hurry to settle up. My insurance company's lawyer was dealing with their people and they weren't in a hurry. And to make a long story more brief, uh, one part of the process was I was required to go through a deposition. I'd never been part of something like that or uh, attended any or anything. And in that deposition, I was, uh, I was made to promise that I would tell the truth. It was just like if I was in court. And <clears throat> the lawyer, the other party's lawyer, cross-examined me, and he tried to trip me up and make me look totally irresponsible and reckless. And it was, not, it was not comfortable at all. It was kind of miserable. I've had two root canals, and they were pleasant compared to that. <laughs> and they still didn't get settled up. And so uh, summer, a year ago, I got a notice in the mail that a court date was set up for March 27, 2017, at 9 AM in the circuit court in Rustburg. Oh no, I, I was dreading that. I knew it would be just as bad as the deposition. 
if not worse. And uh, so, you know, it was a long way off, so that helped. And, uh, but it was coming closer. And every time it came to mind, I just dreaded that. And I'd pray about it. I'd pray that uh, they could get settled up and this would turn out all right. And um, didn't hear anything. And time went by. And it was coming closer several weeks ahead of that, about two weeks ahead of the trial date. I emailed the lawyer who was representing my insurance company. Uh, he had said in his letter that he would uh, want to meet with me and go over some things, you know, before the trial. So I wrote and asked whether he had any instructions or how he wanted to handle that. And then I went outside to haul some wood or something. And Martha came running out of the house a little while later and said, the lawyer emailed back and said the case was settled. It's all done. It's over. He had just overlooked letting me know. I don't know when it was settled or what the details were, but it was a great relief to me. I probably let it get too big. But I was delivered, and I was so thankful that that was over with. I still am thankful that I didn't have to go there. Maybe I'll have something worse in the future, but that one's passed. But I've thought about that numbers of times since, that deliverance. And it reminded me how I can begin to take for granted the deliverance through Jesus Christ. And it just kind of is sort of a normal thing that happened. And I'm not, I'm not appreciating it like I need to. And it just made me reflect on that. I was challenged to reflect more often about Christ's great work and about his mercy and sacrifice and love for me. And it renews my gratitude and my love for him. So part of communion is response. And I believe in preparing for a communion service. This happens ahead of time. We have our, our council meeting. But, you know, a thoughtful, a serious Christian is thinking about these things uh, from day to day, not necessarily every day to the same degree as we do right now, but uh, this comes to mind often. How do we respond? Well, one thing that I'm impressed with is that we come as we are. We come as we are. And uh, whether it's to salvation or as a Christian who is needing to have his heart stirred, we come as we are to Jesus. That's how the publican came, the sinful woman at Jesus' feet, that gathering demoniac. That's how they came to Jesus. They couldn't fix themselves to be suitable to come into Jesus' presence. There's a beautiful song in our hymnal, Just As I Am, Just As I Am Without One Plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am. We sing it often at, at, uh, as an invitation hymn at revival meetings. 
But it's a good song anytime. We have nothing ourselves. We have no excuse. There's nothing that we have of equal value that we can barter with God for. We have no merit. We're lost. No plea, no case except that Jesus said, come. Whosoever will may come. And we do, we come. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Charlotte Elliott wrote that song. She was visiting some friends in London and she met a visiting minister from Switzerland, Cesar Milan. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right or not. But while they were sitting at supper, this Cesar Milan said to her, he hoped that she was a Christian. And she was offended and said that she would rather not discuss that question. And uh, Cesar Milan said he was sorry if he had offended her and that he always liked to say a word for his master and that he hoped that the young lady would someday become a worker for Jesus. And this contact, this little conversation shook Charlotte and she got to thinking about her own spiritual needs. And several weeks later, they met, they happened to be at the same place again. I mean, at, a, at another place, but at the, they were together at this other place. And Charlotte spoke to this minister and said that ever since he had spoken to her, that she was troubled and she was trying to find the Savior and that she wished that he would just tell her, explain to her how to come to Christ. How shall I come to Jesus? And he said, just come as you are. Just come as you are. And she did. And she left that place rejoicing. And not long after that, she wrote this hymn, Just As I Am. This uh, Cesar Milan, he was a songwriter also. He wrote the song, Every day will I bless thee. I will extol thee, O my God, and praise thee, O my King. Yea, every day and evermore thy praises I will sing. Every day will I bless thee. Every day will I bless thee. I will praise, I will praise thy name forever and ever. We respond just as we are. From where we are, the way we are, honestly and sincerely. And we respond in surrender. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Surrender. 
acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The heart response. Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. The living sacrifice laid on the altar. And God sent his son uh, to conquer. He sent his son with surrender terms for us. Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you love me, keep my commandments. But his surrender terms are so generous, so kind. Not a take no prisoners kind of conqueror. If you go back through history, you'll find some sickening atrocities that happened during wartime when invaders conquering a country just killed every enemy they saw, lined them up on the edges of, uh, of ditches and just mow, mow them down with machine guns or forced them to uh, walk off of cliffs and many other terrible things. But Jesus is so kind, take my yoke upon you, surrender to me, and learn of me, and you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man surrender, hear my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. Such kind surrender terms. Accept my yoke and I'll give you rest. Open the door and I'll come in and we'll have sweet communion. This kind of surrender is not losing. It's gaining. I am by far wealthier and so much better off than when I tried to run my own show. Paul, when he dropped in the road, Stunned by the light on the way to uh, Damascus, he heard a voice. Why are you kicking against me? And he asked, who are you? I'm Jesus. And I've wondered if there were some moments of silence while this great truth dawned on Paul. And then he said, what do you want me to do, Lord? He surrendered. It was Paul who wrote, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Acts records Paul sharing his conversion testimony a number of times, the story of his trip to Damascus. And I wonder how many other times he told it that aren't recorded. I imagine there were many. But all his life, this was such a marvelous thing that God was merciful to him, a chief of sinners. And I liked what Elaine said about all of us, even if we've 
been raised in a Christian home. It takes the mercy and the miracle of God to make us a Christian. We offer a holy life. We don't just come the way we are and stay the way we are. We are, God wants us to grow and change. Now the, the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. And Paul, several places, gives a call something similar to what we have in Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and so forth. So when wrong attitudes rise up, when sinful thoughts come to mind, we deal with them. We want to deal with them. And by God's grace, we can make every thought subject to Christ and his lordship. And when sin lieth at the door and temptations appear, we flee. We choose to flee. And when opportunities come to approach temptations, sometimes we're tempted to approach temptations and enjoy temptations, but we make no provision for the flesh. And if we sin, when we sin, we confess, we repent, and we offer ourselves anew to Christ. It's beyond leaving sin. It's coming to Jesus. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. There's a little poem that uh, I remember hearing when I was a little boy it was written back in 1917. Which loved best? Some of you may have heard it. I love you, mother, said little John. Then forgetting his work, his cap went on, and he was off to the garden swing, leaving his mother the wood to bring. I love you, mother, said Rosie Nell. I love you more than tongue can tell. And then she teased and pouted full half the day till her mother was glad when she went to play. I love you, mother, said little Fran. Today I'll help you all I can. How glad I am that school doesn't keep. And she rocked the babe till he fell asleep, and then stepping softly, she took the broom and swept the floor and dusted the room. Busy and happy all day was she, helpful and happy as a child could be. I love you, mother, again they said, all the children said, three little children going to bed. How do you think their mother guessed which of them really loved her best? I think that poem was written to kind of challenge little children, but, you know, it sort of suits us too.
it sort of suits us too. God can tell which of his children really love him. He sees our decisions. He sees our motives. He sees how we follow and obey him. And then we worship him. There's a response of worship. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. I read a a moment ago. And indescribable, indescribably wonderful gift. It's beyond words to explain, to express how great and how precious this gift of Christ and his offering is to the redeemed. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits to me, said the psalmist. In Psalm 116. And when we, when we worship the Lord, we could spend a lot of time on that, but uh, for the sake of time. Um, when we worship the Lord uh, and love the Lord more than anything else, The second commandment follows quite naturally, more naturally. When we really love the Lord, it's not nearly so difficult to love our brothers and sisters and neighbors. And God commanded it, and in part it is a decision, but it doesn't come unless we love the Lord first and most of all. But there are so many times in the uh, New Testament that we're instructed, especially through the epistles, we're instructed to love the brethren, to love one another. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And over and over again. And it makes, we don't just come to communion filled with love for the Lord. And yet we, as we look across the congregation and see someone that we don't really feel love for, that doesn't work together. When we come loving the Lord and grateful for his work, like we should, like we want to, we will love one another. I think that commune, you know, our emotions can go up and down and how close we are to God kind of goes up and down. Some days you feel uh, just a little more on fire and fervent and close to him than Maybe at other moments we work on that, but that's kind of how life is. But communion services should be a high point for us all to love the Lord and love each other. So this morning we come as we are. We commit ourselves to him surrendered.
we offer, we commit ourselves to follow him, to obey him. And we worship him this morning. We love him more than anything. And we love one another. And, and with that attitude and that worship, it is acceptable to God. It glorifies him. And it blesses his children. It blesses all of us together. May God be honored and glorified by our worship here this morning.